the rest of us, if you'd turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12. And uh, the original plan was to preach uh, 18 through 24, and as I was uh, working through the sermon this week, I realized, nah, we need to finish out the chapter, so we're going we're gonna to go ahead and do that this morning. So, hear the word of God. For you have not come to a mountain that can be touched, and to a blazing fire, and to bark- darkness, and gloom, and whirlwind, and to the blast of a trumpet, and the sound of words which sound was such that those who heard begged that no further word be spoken to them. For they could not bear the command, if even a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I'm full of fear and trembling. But you have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. And to God, the judge of all, and the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if those did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven. And his voice shook the earth then, but now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This expression, yet once more, denotes the removing of those things that can be shaken as of created things, so that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Let's pray. Our Lord and our King, we lift up our eyes to heaven. Because we desperately need you, O God, to deal with our hearts during this service. We recognize the the frailty of the preacher. We recognize the weakness of our own hearts to receive your word. And we know, O God, that we depend desperately on you to open up our hearts and our minds to understand your truth and our wills that we may believe. And so we ask that you would do that. We pray for our children and children's worship, and we ask our God that this time will be a time of salvation for them, that they will meet you and walk with you all the days of their lives. And for all of us, Lord, change us, that we may better bring glory and honor to your name. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I told Robin yesterday as we were uh, walking uh, the dog, which of course you know is this. So anyway, but so we had lots of time to talk. Uh, but uh, as as we were uh, discussing and just kind of talking about this, I said, "Well, I'm going to start out the sermon by giving a a, a brief study of uh, covenant theology." So that's how we're going to get started this morning. And. I anticipate some people running out the back, but no. Um, covenant theology is, is kind of how we understand the scripture, and, and, and I'm just going to walk us through that uh, we believe that, uh, uh, as the confession says, the distance between God and us is so great that we could never benefit from God. 
unless he voluntarily condescends to us, right? He's got to reach down to us, and he's chosen to do that by way of covenant. He did that with the covenant of creation. He instituted a covenant of works with man (coughs) in which um, uh, humanity fell. God said, you know, if you obey me, um, there'll be life. If you disobey me, there's going to be death. And so what did man do? We, he turned right around and, and fell. So, so humanity fell in the covenant of works. But God didn't stop. He wasn't done with man. And so he entered into a covenant of grace with man. And that is that he said, okay, I'm going to suffer your penalty and I'm going to obey the requirements that I placed on you. So God says, I'll do both and I'll deal with you in grace not giving you what you deserve, and uh, to instead give you my kindness that is undeserved. Now that went from, from Genesis 3 to the book of Revelation. It's all covenant of grace, everything um, in, in that. And, but there are two administrations of the covenant of grace. There's the old administration, and therefore the new administration, right? And so, so we understand that. And, and so I want us to just kind of look at the way that this works out. As we, as we, as we talk about the, the old administration, we're really talking about from Genesis through the gospel of John. Remember that Jesus lived under the old administration of the covenant of grace. The new administration of the covenant of grace did not get instituted until after he was raised from the dead. So he was still working under that old administration. And under the old, you've got various um, individuals that God kind of revealed this administration to. He started with, with Adam in Genesis 3, and then to Noah. And we remember Noah with the rainbow, and um, Robin and I were looking out, uh, I think it was a couple days ago, as we were driving, and, and uh, there were just some really, really dark clouds. But faintly in the dark clouds, we could see a little bit of a rainbow. And we thought, isn't that kind of like life, that sometimes we're going through, and it's just dark clouds, but but there's a hint of the promise of God in the midst of those dark clouds. And it was just a real great encouragement to us. And so that was the, the covenant administration that God gave to him. And then he expands it with Abraham. And he enters into this covenant with Abraham. It's still that old administration of the covenant of grace. But imagine what it was like being in that covenant. And you've been going along and you're working in the, in the covenant of, of, of grace with God and, and everything's going fine under Noah. And this is all cool. We, you know, we got a few sacrifices that we do. And all of a sudden God opens up Abraham and, and to Abraham he says, and, and I want you to uh, circumcise all of your males at eight days. I said, whoa, 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 what was wrong with the other one? What was wrong with Noah? That was, that was fine. Why do we have to make this, this, this change? Why do we have to add that? And people could be a little bit bothered with this change. It's like, why are we doing this? And then from Abraham, they go to Moses. And with Moses, he gives them all of these new sacrifices that they've got to do. And there's just, just sacrifices <coughs> left and right. He establishes the priesthood. The priesthood wasn't there until then. This is a part of the new administration of what they're, they're having to deal with. Is, is, uh, the, the, now they have these priests that are going to stand between them and God. And then there's also um, the new sacrifices, offerings, and feasts that they've got to deal with. And then David. <coughs> and God enters into the covenant with David. And what does he do with David? Well, it's through David then and the Davidic covenant that he, he brings about the temple. And so they've got this great temple that they can now worship. And it's like, well, that's kind of cool. And so just these different administrations. And if you can imagine what it was like to transition, even under that old administration, to the different elements. And it could be difficult and challenging. But then you move to the new covenant, and you've got something 
entirely new. The priesthood is now gone. And can you imagine the people a little bit bothered by that? They haven't been able to relate directly to God. They've always had to relate through the priest, and now, and now they're going directly to God, and it feels uncomfortable. It feels not quite right that we, we need to have someone between us and the realization that someone is actually Jesus. And they realize now that there's no blood. Now, we look at that, and, and we think, oh, it'd be, it'd be awful to have all the blood and the sacrifices and stuff, but for them, it was normal. That's what worship involved blood. There had to be some blood. They, they understood that, and all of a sudden now it's all gone. And that would be difficult for them to recognize. And the temple is no longer there, which I think is a part of why God had it completely wiped out in uh, 60 AD to, to remove that from the, the people of God. They're longing for that temple. And then he brought all these Gentiles in with them. You know, up until that point, it was all Jews, and so they, they were just all together, but now all of a sudden, the, the Gentiles are there, and the Jews are there, and they're the same church. Well, that's a difficult transition for someone. Can you imagine how hard that would be for someone in the first century? And that's the people who are receiving this letter uh, of Hebrews, is to a group of people who are dealing with this transition and not sure exactly how this works, and how do I change from, from the old administration to the new administration, and, and it's just, it's, it's a confusing thing that they're, they're experiencing and trying to deal with, and so the, the author to Hebrews, he's been bringing them all along, and now he's saying, okay, now look, we're in the new administration of the covenant of grace, let's live in the new. Let's not just keep looking back to the old. Now's the time, live in the new. And to bring them in that place, he begins by, by uh, comparing the two administrations. And that's what really 18 and 24 are all about. And as I was, again, I said that I, I added the uh, 25 through 29 uh, as I was doing my studies, because I realized all we really have is that, that comparison in, in 18 through 24, and 25 through 29 is really the, the application of that comparison. But uh, he, he wants to begin by showing them the difference. And he, he lays them down side by side, and he compares them while at the same time pointing to them, we can't really go back. We are in the new covenant. We are in the new administration of the covenant of grace. Recognize that. And, and so let's start by looking at the old in verses 18 through 21. <clears throat> For you have not come to a mountain that can be touched, and to a blazing fire, and to darkness, and to gloom and whirlwind, and to the blast of a trumpet, and the sound of words which sound was such that those who heard begged that no further word be spoken to them. For they could not bear the command, if even a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I am full of fear and trembling." Do you, do you recognize the, the image that he's giving? He's, he's alluding to Exodus chapter 19 and the giving of the law, which is uh, the beginning of the, the mosaic portion of the old administration. And in Exodus chapter 19, we read these words, and I just want to read them so that we see the similarity with what we have just uh, read. <coughs> God says to Moses, you just set bounds for the people all around, saying, beware that you do not go up on the mountain or touch the border of it, Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall surely be stoned or shot through. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the ram's horn sounds a loud blast, they shall come up to the mountain. 
So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. He said to the people, be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. So it came about on the third day when it was morning that there was thunder and lightning flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain and a very loud trumpet sound so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was all in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire, and its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked violently. When the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him with thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. The Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. It's just an awesome scene, isn't it? It's just even imagining what this was like. And this is, this is exactly what the author of Hebrews is alluding to. The, the Jews knew this story. It was a, it was a part of their, their everyday meditation. They were, they were aware of this incredible moment when God comes down and He gives His law. And it, it wasn't just a, 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 a gentle, if, if you will, uh, someone going through singing a song about the law of God. But it was just this incredible awe and there was smoke and there's fire and there's trumpets and there's loud voices and the earth is trembling and there's, there's darkness and gloom. And it's all that is described in the book of Hebrews and it's, it's laid out for us. Let's look for a moment and do you notice the distance in the old administration, the distance between God and the people that we begin to see? He talks about fire and darkness gloom and whirlwind and uh, that, that they could uh, have no more words and if someone even touched the mountain they had to be stoned it's not really inviting language is it right i mean it's not like hey why don't you come to this great time where we're going to have whirlwinds and we're going to have uh, lightning and we're going to have fire and smoke and gloom doesn't it sound great right that, that's that's not what we think of when we think about a sunday morning worship service so it, it, it has this idea of this, this distance. It's keeping everyone off to the side. In the, in the Old Covenant, they had the, the priests, which would stand between the, the worshiper and God. The law was there, but the law was on stone tablets outside of themselves. There was the temple and the tabernacle, which were also places that were distant. And, and you and I couldn't actually go in, Right? Some of us could only go to the outer uh, room and others a, a little bit more in, but then no one could go into the holy place and, and only one person could go into the holy of holies, right? So it's, it's all distant in the old administration of the covenant of grace. There's, there's this, this chasm between us and God. It's, it's not complete. Well, sometimes we kind of feel safe with God at a distance, right? There's within us sometimes that... that I'd like him over there. Because when he gets in my life, he messes with it, right? When he gets in my life, it changes everything. And he's scary sometimes. The holiness of God is overwhelming. And so we feel that we, we maybe like that distance. Um, Philip Yancey's written a book uh, entitled Disappointment with God, uh, really profound meditations. Um, I just want to read a, a, a part of it. In it, he's, he's asking a few questions that a person who's disappointed with God will frequently ask. And, and one of them, is God hidden? And so he asks that. He says, is God hidden? And here he begins to look at the significance of Jesus coming in the flesh and the change that's taken place. With Jesus, 
God actually took on a shape in the world, acquiring a face, a name, and an address. He was a God you could touch and smell and hear and see. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father, Jesus said bluntly. And yet Jesus' visibility, his very ordinariness, introduced a new problem for Jews raised on stories of Mount Sinai and Mount Carmel. Where was the smoke, the fire, the burst of light? Jesus did not match their image of what God should look like. He was a man, for goodness sake, one who hailed from from the jerkwater town of Nazareth at that, Mary's boy, a common carpenter. Jesus' neighbors who had watched him play in the streets with their own children never could accept him as the Messiah. And Mark notes in a remarkable aside that even Jesus' own family once concluded he's out of his mind. His mother and brothers. Mary, who on seeing the angel Gabriel had spontaneously let loose with the Annunciation hymn, his brothers who had spent more time with him than anyone else, these two could not reconcile the strange combination of wondrous and ordinary. Jesus' skin got in the way. The very nearness of God made him hard to believe. And I think that's instructive to us that we wrestle with that. But that's what the old administration had God at a distance, and, it, and, it, and it, it, it maintained that. So notice not just the distance, but notice also the fear. I see in verse 21, and so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I'm full of fear and trembling. Moses was afraid. The fear that was so much there that, and sometimes I think we can confuse the fear of the Lord and being afraid of God, Right? Just by saying that, does that kind of make a sense? That, yeah, there's a difference there. I don't have to be afraid of God, but I have a fear of God, which is a, a recognition of his, his absolute magnificence. And, and we'll talk more about that in uh, a, a little bit later. But Jesus faced the full wrath of God completely and totally and absorbed it entirely, suffered the fullness of it voluntarily for you. That doesn't create a fear, but that's more than I can handle, right? That's too much for me. That's the fear of the Lord, not being afraid of Him. This is the old administration. As we look at that, we we notice the distance, we notice the fear. But let's also then look at the new, verse 22. But you've come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. To Mount Zion. Um, there are two psalms that speak of Mount Zion that I just want us to draw our attention so that we might understand a little bit more about what this meant to a Jew in the first century. The first is Psalm 48 that says, Beautiful in elevation, the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. The recognition that Mount Zion, he's talking about, this is the city of the great king, the Messiah, who would be coming. This is his city. That's what Mount Zion is. It's this magnificent city. And we think of cities, we have to remember a city has always got lots of folks in it, right? Yeah, 
Yeah, uh, otherwise it's a ghost town, no matter how big it would be. But it's a, it's a city, and so it's got all these people, and it's a city that belongs to the great king. And then in Psalm 74, again in verse 2, it says, Remember your congregation which you have purchased of old, which you have redeemed to be the tribe of your inheritance, and this Mount Zion where you have dwelt. And here I want to see that the, the Mount Zion, there's a couple different things. I believe it's also the congregation that he's talking about. But Mount Zion is the place where God has dwelt. This is where he dwells. It isn't that he just owns it, but it's where he lives. And you have come to Mount Zion, to that place where God dwells, to that place that is his city. That's where we have come. That's the new administration of the cutter of grace. First of all, look at the population. Notice the population that we see in this, this great city. First of all, he talks uh, uh, over and over about God. He says it's the city of the living God. And uh, then he says, we've also come to, uh, verse 23, to the general assembly and to the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God. It's not just the city of God, but also God is there. And in verse 24, and to Jesus. Jesus is also there. So he's reminding us of who is present. The population involves God himself. Secondly, he talks about the myriads of angels. Not just one or two of them hanging out as sentries but thousands upon thousands of angelic beings that are moving about in the city, interacting with the people who are there. What an amazing population to be able to walk through and it's like, oh, there's, there's a cherubim and there's a seraphim and I know the difference. That would be kind of cool. And, and as, as we were able to see that and to experience them, these, these beings that God has created who are, who are so phenomenally powerful and they're just walking among us. But that's not all. Then he talks about the church. The church is there. The people of God, all of the chosen of God from all of creation. And he talks about the, the souls of the righteous made perfect. The saints, the redeemed of the Lord, whose sins have been forgiven, who are covered by the very righteousness of Jesus Christ, are there. That's kind of cool, isn't it? That's kind of an amazing population in the new administration of the covenant of grace. Consider that. But also, also notice the hope, particularly in verse 24. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. He's now that priest. We don't have a priest mediating between us and God anymore. It's just Jesus, and he's the mediator. But he's more than just the mediator. He's also the sacrificial lamb. Where he speaks of the blood, which is sprinkled. In the Old Testament, the blood of the lamb would be sprinkled all over the, the, the Holy of Holies and upon the, upon the veil and upon the, the um, uh, horns of the altar in order to make atonement for the sins. But yet it wasn't sufficient. They had to do it year after year after year after year because it was never enough. But Jesus sprinkled his own blood once for all. And it is completely cleansed. He speaks of that sprinkling of blood that speaks better. And this word better comes up over and over again in the book of Hebrews. And it means more powerful. There's more substance to it. There's more, more accomplishment. It's better. And the blood of Jesus speaks better than the blood of Abel. Think about it for a moment. Do you remember the blood of Abel and what was the message that it spoke? 
it spoke the message of accusation and condemnation against Cain, right? It was the blood of Abel that said, Cain is the one who has done this to me. It was the blood of Abel that condemned Cain. But the blood of Jesus speaks salvation to you and to I. It's better. It's more powerful. So that's that comparison between these these two administrations of the covenant. And as we look at them, there's no question which one's better, right? There's, it's, just, it's just absolute. Do we, do we, do we want the, the distance and the fear? Or do we want the population of, of the holy ones of God and the hope of the sprinkled blood? And what he's showing us is, but remember, you're in the new. So live in the new by heeding the call. Verse 25 through 29. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if those did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven. And his voice shook the earth then, but now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. This expression, yet once more, denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken, as of created things, so that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. The blood speaks better. The blood speaks in two ways. First of all, the blood speaks to God. The blood of Jesus speaks to God. And that's spoken of in the hymn, uh, Arise, My Soul, Arise. Let me just read to you uh, the third verse of that hymn. Five bleeding wounds He bears received on Calvary. They pour effectual prayers. They strongly plead for me. Forgive Him. Oh, forgive, they cry. Forgive Him. Oh, forgive, they cry. Nor let that ransomed sinner die. That's the message that they cry out to God. That's the message that the blood cries out to God on your behalf. That's the message that it cries out on my behalf. For all who are trusting in Jesus Christ, this is the message that Jesus' blood cries out for you. Forgive Him. Forgive and do not let that sinner die. And it is the very power of that blood which provides for us eternal salvation as it pleads with God on our behalf. That's better. That's better. But it also speaks to you and me. That blood, those five bleeding wounds, also speak to you and I, and they say, come. You who have no money, come, buy and eat. You who are weary and heavy laden, come. You who are thirsty, come. For His wounds are calling you. Do not refuse Him who calls you. Heed that call. He invites us. It's an interesting word that I just want to draw to your attention. He says, see to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if those did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven. This word warn. Now usually as we think about warn, we, we think of it tied with a threat, right? I'm warning you, right? And, and there's, there's a threat that's involved in that. I'm not sure that's, that's exactly, I am sure that's not exactly 
what this word means in, in the Greek and, and the idea that it carries. It's, it's not a threat. It, it means to utter an oracle. That's what the word warning means, to, to utter an oracle. Now, there could be almost a threat involved in that if, if God is giving us that, that word, but that's not really in, essential to the meaning of this, this word. It means to speak something, to reveal something from God. Here's, here's two different places in which it's used in the, in the New Testament that we can get, uh, I think, a little bit better understanding of the meaning of this word when we look at this idea of warning. And the first is in, in Matthew chapter 2 and verse 12. And this is God uh, talking about uh, Joseph. And he says, Having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. And you see in this, it isn't God saying, well, you better not, right? I'm warning you don't go that way. He's saying, no, th- there's, there's problems there, so you probably ought to stay away from that. And he's giving it to him by way of a, a revelation, an oracle that has been given to him. And that's the idea of a warning. And it was a, it was a warning that there was impending danger. That was a, a, a part of, of this warning, but it wasn't essential to it. And we understand that when we look at uh, Luke chapter 2. And if you remember Simeon, uh, the righteous and devout man. And in verse uh, 26, um, th- this word is used, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. It had been warned him. Is the same word that we find in Hebrews and that we saw in Matthew. He'd been warned that he would not see death until he'd seen the Lord's Christ. Well, there's no threat in that at all, is there? There's no impending danger. It's telling him, hey, hey, here's an oracle from God. This is, what you're, this is what's going to happen. You're not going to die until you see the Messiah. I, I'm still astounded at how he could even survive after hearing that and the excitement and, and that would just completely fill him. And then to have held Christ in his hands and, and be ready for that Enoch moment. It's like, okay, Lord, take me home now. I'm ready because now I've seen your salvation and the glory of your people, Israel, and, and he, he cries out with that because he'd been given that warning. He'd been given that, that oracle from God to explain to him what was going to be happening. And the same is true as we, we look at this, that, that those who, who were warned, they, they were told, they were given an oracle from God. They were given a message. And we're given a message. The blood is speaking to us and saying, come. We've been given that oracle. And there's not salvation apart from that message that there's salvation in Jesus. So he's inviting you. And there's a promise of the blood. What is the blood promising you? You can be cleansed. And and if we're all honest, we pray Psalm 139, search me, O God, and know my heart, and try me and know my anxious thoughts, and see if there be any hurt way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting, and we're still, and we listen to God. We see the failings, don't you? You know where you've sinned. You know the stain that's on your heart. You feel it. And some of us are, are like Macbeth's Wife, right? Lady Macbeth. Out, out, dark spot. As we're just washing our hands, trying to get the blood off that we just can never remove. Because we feel it has stained us. And the blood cries out, I can wash you whiter than snow. Come to me and trust in me. 
And that's the promise that we have of the cleansing. That all of those sins can actually be washed away. And though my sins are as scarlet, they will be white as snow. He also promises that it's enough. You don't have to help. You don't have to scrub. You don't have to make up for it. You can simply rest. That it's enough. There's no more that could ever be paid. He's paid it all. It's complete. You won't have to suffer any of it because then God would be causing both Jesus and you to suffer for the same crime. And God is a just God who could never allow that to happen. But it's enough so that when Jesus said, it is finished, He meant it. It's finished. The payment is made in full. There's nothing left for you to add to it. And it also says, you're accepted. Because sometimes we wonder if we're acceptable, right? I like the fact that my wife has no sense of smell. I think that helps her stay married to me. I'm I'm convinced that many others might not. (laughs) Um, And it's good that love is blind. That helps a lot as well, right? But to begin to understand, and, and what I mean by that is sometimes we have just doubts as to our own acceptability, right? Am I really okay? I don't know. I think so, but I don't know. I am, but yet sometimes people don't treat me, and so I'm not sure. But Jesus says, I accept you. And the Father accepts you because I love you. And so we have that full acceptance with the only one that really matters. This is the promise of the blood. Will you come to Jesus right now? Will you put your trust in Him and say, Lord Jesus, I want that blood to cover me and to cleanse me. I want that blood only to be my way of coming before you, and I want that blood which helps me to be accepted with the Father. Put your trust in Him today. Pray, Father, forgive me for the sins I've committed because of the work of Jesus. This moment, come to Him. Heed that call and accept the offer. The offer comes from heaven. Look at verse 25. He says, See to it that you do not refuse Him who is speaking. For if those did not escape when they refused Him who warned on earth... Much less will they escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven. The offer comes from heaven. Jesus says in, in uh, Matthew twenty eight eighteen, he says, uh, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Jesus has all that authority. Jesus is the one who says, come to me. And I will give you rest. He makes that offer from heaven so that I know it's reliable. An offer on earth may be pretty good, right? But it could still fail. Um, I think of that when I think of uh, the inflation in uh, Zimbabwe. And some of you know, I I believe that I have a billion dollar bill in my uh, office from Zimbabwe. You know, we'd have a hundred dollar bill. I have a billion dollar bill from Zimbabwe. And it's not worth the paper it's printed on. Even though it's got the government stamp, even the government said this is good and, and useful, it's useless because the government wasn't able to stand behind it. But God has promised from heaven. And we can rely upon his promise. It will last absolutely and completely. He talks about that he's going to shake everything, right? 
that it's all going to be shaken, and it's, and it's all going to be, so that everything that can be shaken is going to be shaken, so that all that remains is what lasts. And that's the promise, the offer that Jesus gives to us. It remains. The rest of it's all going to be shaken away, but what's going to remain there is the promise of God and what He has given to His people. And so we can receive that and rejoice in that reality. And nothing, nothing, nothing can take it away. And therefore, let's worship. Verse 28 and 29. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. I want to read from... uh, John Piper's book, uh, Let the Nations Be Glad. Um, this is just a classic quote, um, and it's just very poignant and uh, apropos for the message today. He says, Missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over, and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. It is a temporary necessity, but worship abides forever. Amen? It's what we're doing as we're sharing our faith and we're learning about that September 9 is we're, we're trying to help make worshipers of Jesus. It's what we want to accomplish. It's what we do. We're given this picture of, of worship in, in these verses that we talk about, that it's our acceptable service with reverence and awe. That's our worship. Uh, similar terms are used in, in uh, Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. He's talking about, he, he, he says, I want to urge you by the mercies of God. He begins by saying, let the mercy of God be what draws you to make this action. As you contemplate, as you apprehend the mercy of God in your life, what should you do? You should present your body a living sacrifice. Someone jokingly say the problem with living sacrifices is they keep jumping off the altar. And, and there's some element of that that's, that's true. But, but to present myself a living sacrifice, that I'm going to live for Jesus Christ, which is your spiritual service of worship. This is what worship is. This is the definition of worship. This is why when, when I talk about worship, I utilize the definition that worship is to abandon my will to God's. That's what worship is, to abandon my will to God's. So as I come into a worship service, and maybe it's a a, a different tradition that I'm used to, but I'm coming in there not to get my tradition across. I'm going in there to abandon my will to God. And they maybe don't sing the hymns that I like, but I'm going to abandon my will to God's. This is what he wants me to worship him with this day, so this is what I'm going to worship him with. I'm going to abandon my will to him. And it's a complete release This is all to you, God. You're the Lord. I am not. I abandon myself to you. That's worship. And worship begins, according to this verse, with gratitude. Let us show gratitude. Gratitude. What's he provided? Did anybody just think everything? Go ahead and raise your hand if you thought that. Right? And that's great. That's great. But you know what the problem with the word everything is? It lacks specificity. If he's provided everything, it should be easy for me to begin to make a list, right? Because I can't miss. What if I begin to make a list? What has he provided? 
He's provided a church family where I'm supported and encouraged and people who are believers who can remind me to keep trusting Jesus whenever it comes. He's provided a home. He's provided this magnificent building for us as a, as a church. He's provided a neighborhood for us to be able to uh, interact with. He's provided us with the Word of God. He's provided us with eternal salvation. I'm, I'm, I'm really glad. You? so thankful, Lord. I'm going to start there by looking at what he's provided, not by looking at what he hasn't given me that I think he should have, but recognizing this is what he has given. And I begin with that thanksgiving, and then I live in awe. He talks about with reverence and awe. The word reverence is a word that means caution or also devout. Remember Simeon that we, we read a little bit earlier? Got that Warning, he's said to be a devout man, a man of reverence. And think of the connection between caution and reverence. Yeah, I can see that. I'm going to live in that way. I'm, I'm going to recognize that I'm living before an unbelievable being in whom I'm filled with, or in whose presence I'm filled with awe. And maybe you've experienced awe at some point in, in your life. I know we've had a number of people in our congregation that have been to Arizona lately. Um, a couple of years ago, everybody was going to Estes Park, Colorado, and, and, and this year, everybody seems to be going to Arizona, and we're seeing the Grand Canyon. The Grand Canyon is, is an amazing thing to see. And if you've ever been there, and I know the first time that I ever went, and I, I, set, I think we, we maybe had like an hour we're going to spend looking at the Grand Canyon, and Robin just shakes her head. She says, yeah, I'm married to an idiot, but anyway... <laughs> And we got out there, and I, I, I've heard people talk about your knees uh, going weak. I literally experienced it. I had to sit down. I was so completely overwhelmed with the magnificence of this hole that was just filled with so much glory, and it was more than I could imagine. It was just, it was, it was, it was awesome. That's the point. How much more to be in the presence of He is a consuming fire and to not be burned up. That's worship. The old has a pull on our hearts, doesn't it? Okay? As, as Reformed Presbyterians, we tend to be conservative, and a part of that is we like the old. Let's just hang on to the old. That's, that's a part of what it is to be conservative. Okay, yeah, I'm not, that's not good or bad. That's just, that's just a reality. <clears throat> but the, the old has a pull. There's a nostalgia to it, right? And can you imagine the, the Jews who'd become Christians and the nostalgia of remembering when, when daddy took me to the temple and he took me by the hand the first time I went there and I saw my first sacrifice and I watched him bow down and worship and, and I learned about the Passover as, as dad would explain. I'd say, dad, what does this mean to you? And he begins to describe to me about how, about how God passed over uh, the, the children of Israel so that the, the angel of wrath would not fall upon them and he preserved them and he took them out of, of, of uh, Egypt and, and he remembers that and there's, there's a beautiful nostalgia to that and it, and it meant a lot. And I'm now having to leave that aside not the meaning, but the administration, how it's administered. We like rituals. Sometimes rituals are easier. It's easier to go through the motions than to cause my heart 
to abandon my will every single week and multiple times during the service, right? It's a whole lot easier. Well, just if I go through these rituals, everything's good. All I got to do is kneel at the right time and stand at the right time and sing at the right time and we're good. We like that. That's the old administration. We also like the idea that our tribe is special, right? That's what the Jews had. Our tribe is special. We're the ones who get it. This being a part of this thing where a lot of other people get it too isn't so comfortable. I got to love them, but they don't worship like I do. They don't even look like I do. Exactly. That's the pull of the old upon us. But let's live in the new because we're in the new covenant. Take time to compare the old and the new, the two administrations, and then heed that call that he offers. And let's live in the new. Let's pray. Father, you're so good to us. Thank you. We just want to thank you for the new covenant. We want to thank you for the light. We want to thank you for your nearness. We want to thank you for the population of the holy angels and all of your saints. We want to thank you for the hope of the blood. We thank you that we're in the new covenant, O oh God. We pray that you'll help us to keep living in that new, rejoicing in and giving glory to you, our Savior. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.